We are reaching the end of the most wonderful prayer ever to be uttered from this planet Earth. Oftentimes our Lord spent whole nights in prayer, possibly whole days in prayer, but never before was he this close to going back to the Father. Never before was glory just a few hours away. He now whispers to his Father's heart the ultimate object for which he was here on earth in our nature. He was about to lay down his life. Interesting, huh? How very close was Gethsemane. The dark shades of Calvary were gathering around his blessed soul, yet nothing could take his mind from his beloved sheep. With all of that pending so close, his prayer isn't for himself, it's for us. He was not thinking of himself, but of them. Imagine glory right around the corner. The prospect of leaving this dirty, sin-infested world of unbelief and contradiction against himself. You know, whenever you're in a place that you feel unwanted and you're kind of glad to get out. Our Lord wasn't, though. Look at Hebrews 12:3. I want to show you. I want to show you that we, as a people, were a contradiction to him. It says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. You know, you think, huh, the way people treat me, I don't want no, nothing to do with it. I want to get out of here. No, our Lord didn't do that. His heart goes out to his sheep. Look at John 10, verse 14. John 10, 14. 14, 15, and then we'll go to 26 and 27. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, that's us, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now look at verse 26 down through 28. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Earlier in his prayer, he said, Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now that was verse 5 in John 17. The time was at hand. Soon, very soon, the everlasting gates shall be opened to the King of glory. And he shall take his place at the right hand of God. This was coming. He knew it. But let's take a look at Psalm 24 that tells you that it was going to happen. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. 
Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up. Ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and even lift them up. Ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Okay. Now, if you think that General Schwarzkopf got a victory welcome and a celebration, his is nothing compared to this. All heaven roared with the hallelujahs of the angels, and all the hosts of heaven gave him adoration. Yet he is thinking of his dear people and pleading for them. His language intimates that he would not be satisfied with the glory itself unless they are there with him to behold his glory. Isn't that wonderful? Just wonderful. John 14, 2 and 3. His concern for the poor disciples. He told them he was going and they, like a bunch of crybabies, he wants to encourage their hearts. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Wipe away your tears. Come on. Let you believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Get your John 17 again. Hold that place over there. Here's how he starts his verse today. In verse 24, Father, I will. Only Christ could use these words in prayer. Used by anyone else, they would be irreverent and profane. But here it's a holy heart throb whispered to his father's heart concerning his redeemed. He wants every one of the elect to be with him. We all hoped to be one day in heaven. Ask someone or ask anyone or everyone what is the character of this heaven that we hope for. The answers will range from all levels of ignorance to what heaven is to the child of God. The man whose soul is born from above, whose eyes are enlightened with divine light, who has been made free by the truth, can describe his hope in one sense, to be with Christ and behold his glory. That's our heaven. That was the limit for Paul. Look at Philippians 1.23. That's as much as he could say. Philippians 1.23 For I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And that was also the limit for the thief on the cross. Look at Luke 23.43 Luke twenty three forty three. 
And Jesus said unto him, This is to the thief on the cross, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be, here's the important part, with me. Oh, he didn't care where it was. The thief really didn't. If he was with Christ, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. With Christ is our heaven. Can you imagine talking about this thief on a cross now? The single opportunity of dying alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith to see the King of glory and receive his welcome while others saw nothing but his bloody, naked disguise as a transgressor. The Bible ever say that he was numbered with transgressors? Well, you know Isaiah 53, 12. You don't have to turn there. It says he was numbered with the transgressors. That's all that the crowd could see at the time. Three crosses. Three criminals hanging upon the crosses. Ah, but that center cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth. If you are anticipating heaven, what is your title to it? There is but one title to heaven, and that's the blood and the righteousness of the Lamb. Don't ever get away from the sacrificial viewpoint of the Son of God. John the Baptist introduced him as the Lamb of God. Turn to, first, to John one twenty nine, In the book of John, first chapter... 1, 29, and also 36. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Verse 36, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, in Revelation, the Lamb is very prominent. Turn to Revelation 5 and look at verse 5. Revelation 5, 5. I want you to understand when you start with Revelation 5, it's all future. Revelation begins to be future right after uh, in chapter 4. Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion. The tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Well, you say, well, where is the lamb there? Next verse. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood not a lion, a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before, not the lion, they fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open its seals thereof, for thou wast slain, 
and hath redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and made and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Isn't that wonderful? The Lamb, always mentioned. Very prominent in Revelation. But even Isaiah prophesied of the Lord Jesus Christ as a Lamb. Look at Isaiah 53, 7. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So we have the Lamb of God very prominent in the scriptures. Ah, but there's one more in Revelation. Oh, there's one more that lifts him way up. That's in Revelation 13:8. Revelation 13.8. Here's a verse of scripture that's so frustrating to the religious world and to great religious minds that when they come to write a commentary on the book of Revelation, they can write a book as thick as the Bible itself, but when they come to this verse, they just scoot right by it. Don't even give it a mention. Isn't that interesting? When a person can take a book and make a verse-by-verse verse exposition of the whole thing, but when they come to Revelation 13, 8, hey, forget it. We don't want to talk about the last part of that verse, the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The religious world does not like the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ knew everybody who's going to die for. And then to top it off, their names are written in his book of life. Not a single one is going to be deleted. The sad part to the religious world is there's going to be no additions either. The Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood for those the Father gave him. And the ones the Father gave him, their names are putting in the Lamb's book of life. They're all going to come to him during their lifetime, okay? No matter where they are, no matter what country they're in, what state they're in, what color they are, what language they speak, they will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now how do we know that the I will of this prayer was answered. You know how he started that prayer in John 17, 24? He says, I will. Father, I will. That I will has been answered in the resurrection of Christ. You want to read about the resurrection? Look at Acts 2, 24. Acts 2, 24.
2.24, okay? It says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. You know, the body can't die if it don't sin. Our Lord had to give up his life. He had to voluntarily give it up. Stay right there, though, in that same chapter. Look at verse 31 through 33. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, and neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all, we all are witnesses. Speaking of the resurrection of Christ. So that I will has been proven. That I will has been attested to and sealed by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. John 16, 7, he says, If I go not away, I can't send the Comforter, whom I will send. That I will has been recorded in God's word for the encouragement of our faith. I want you to see now, we can go back to our original scripture to show you that. Look at John 20 and verse 31. John 20, 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. What does it say you might have life? Aren't you having life now? Aren't you alive now? No, this is not the life they're talking about. We're talking about eternal life. That part of the story hasn't even started yet. We have merely opened the cover of the book. And you're looking at the table of contents. 60, 70, 80 years of life. You haven't even gotten into the book yet. This is our trial period. This is when God shows mercy and saves sinners. The story of life hasn't even started. That's the life it's talking about. You might have life through his name. Here's a grand thought for this verse in John 17. It's the registered will of Christ in heaven that every poor sinner who believes upon him, who takes him as God's gift of salvation, shall be with him where he is, beholding that glory which the Father gave him, who loved him before the foundation of the world, and who loves all poor sinners who love Jesus. That's John 17, verse 24. Now verse 25. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. He was about to be made an offering for sin and to bear in his own body on the tree the tremendous penalty due to all the iniquities, transgressions and sins of those he represented and for whom he now pleads. My father, 
my righteous Father. The hour has come. I'm on my way to Calvary. I'm about to pour out my soul unto death. I'm about to drink to the last dregs the cup of thine indignation against the sins of my people. I'm about to suffer the just for the unjust. Turn to 1 Peter 3.18. I want you to see that that's exactly what Peter says. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Now there's a reason given too. You can see that. To bring sinners to God. It says the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the spirit. He says, Father, I'm about to blot out in my own blood the handwriting of ordinances which is against my people. Did he do that? He sure did. Look at Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Those are the exact words in the scriptures. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He says, I'm about to spoil principalities and powers, making a show of them openly. Oh, accept mine offering that they may be with me where I am to behold my glory. That's why I'm doing all this for them. Because of Christ doing all things well and perfect, certain things are owed to him. These certain things that are mercy to us are justice to Christ. Turn to 1 John 1, 9. I'll give you an example. 1 John 1, 9. A wonderful mercy to us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because Christ suffered in our place and it would be an injustice to Christ if our sins were not forgiven. It's one of the reasons why he suffered for us. We're all said to be justified from all things. Also, look at Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. And verse 26. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Also, vengeance, as promised in the scriptures, is just. As to, uh, Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. 
seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And that's justice to Christ and mercy to us when we can rest in him. And God takes care of the vengeance due to those who oppress us. We even get a crown out of this thing. Can you believe that? We get a crown. 2 Timothy 4, 8. Henceforth, this is Paul saying, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. This is kind of hard to imagine. There's some folks don't even like to wear a hat. I don't like to wear a hat. It's hard to imagine wearing a crown. Never see any of those Miss Universe or Miss USA pageants? And they stick the crown on her head there, and uh, I don't know if they do it purposely or not, but it's falling down in her face or it's falling off the back of her head, and she's got to hold it while she's walking around. That's how I figure a crown would look on my head. But it's coming. Oh, and it'll fit. I'm sure it'll be tailor-made. It'll fit. Now to finish up our verse, he says, And the world hath not known me. No, they hath not known thee. The world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. What a mysterious fact this is. The creator of the world, unknown by the world, the light and life of the world, a stranger in our midst, somehow. Well, there's evidence, though. There's evidence of the creator. Why should they not know the creator? Look at Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and a firmament showeth his handiwork. There's evidence right there. John 14, 9. John 14, 9. Here was evidence in the midst of the disciples, and they didn't know it. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Yet the world hath not known thee. Turn to John 1, verse 10 and 11. John 1, 10 and 11. Show you how it works. 
He was in a world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. It wasn't just Gentiles that couldn't see God. It was Israel itself. After 33 years on earth, how few, even among the chosen few disciples, could watch even one hour with him in his hour of trial? He goes to Gethsemane, hours away from being crucified, brings three of the choice ones with him, says, Watch here while I pray. What happens? They fall asleep. Great followers, huh? Human beings. What would you and I have done? We'd have fell asleep before we even got to the garden, probably. How did our Lord face this? We'll take a look at Matthew 11.25. Matthew 11.25. Our Lord never accused them. Sometimes he... Brought him down a little bit. But we're reading in this prayer how he praised him. But 11.25, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hath revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemeth good in thy sight. That's how he handled that. But he finishes by saying, O righteous Father, I have known thee. Yes, he came from his bosom. He knew him well. I know thee and I delight in thee. I can trust thee. I can commit all to thee. I know all thy perfections. I know all thy degrees, thy counsels, thy purposes, thy gentleness, thy long-suffering, thy grace. Thy love, thy kindness, thy thoughts to thy people, and I want them to know them. O Father, that thou wilt for my sake, and for the sake of the great atonement made to thy justice, gather all my believing people to be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. These have known that thou hast sent me. Can you imagine the credit that the Lord gives not just to the disciples here, but to you and me? We know that God the Father sent the Son, don't we? That's one of the first things we learn from the Scriptures, but the rest of the world doesn't know that. You get credit for that. You get credit for believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that God the Father sent him here to die the payment of our sins. Oh, how our Lord overlooks our shortcomings and gives the very best account of his sheep. He does. He says, they have known that thou hast sent me. Oh, there's a lot of things in that prayer he says they know. Oh, they know thy word. They have kept thy word. All things like that, and we're so pathetic. This has been a marvelous chapter in the scriptures. It doesn't hurt to read it at any time. 
You can read it over and over and over again, and it never, never gets old. The 17th chapter of John is the Lord's Prayer, the real Lord's Prayer, not the disciples' prayer, Our Father which art in heaven. That's the disciples' prayer. He was teaching them to pray. This is his heart, the heart throb of our Lord Jesus Christ talking with his Father. The main issue about those whom thou hast given me. Oh, he said it over and over again. As an example of prayer, the things that our Lord repeats, you can see you can repeat things in prayer too. A long time ago I heard somebody say, if you say something one time to the Lord, that's sufficient. And I grabbed on that, jumped on it, that's fine. One time's enough. I find out in our Lord's Prayer that he mentions some things over and over again, especially those whom thou hast given me. Those are the ones on his heart. He invites everybody to come to him, whosoever will can come. Anybody that's thirsty can come. Anybody that's tired or weary can come. Our Lord Jesus Christ invites sinners to come. Are you a sinner? If you're a sinner, you qualify. You qualify for eternal life. The righteous don't qualify. The wise and the prudent don't qualify. But sinners qualify. Anybody can come to him. Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing upon this brief, simple message this morning that thou will bless each heart here and each heart hearing on tape with the adoration and a love toward our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing his great love for us. Again, we ask for thy protection on the roadways. Bless this trip as we go up to Miss Hazel's. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.